The following episode of Defense Matters was recorded shortly before the Israeli government announced Monday that it was calling new elections due to its political instability. As a result, it will be alternate Prime Minister Yair Lapid who will likely be the one hosting President Biden in his visit in July. Defense Matters, a podcast about defense, technology, and the power of that movement. An Israel defense production in association with IAI. Hello and welcome to Defense Matters, a podcast about all matters of defense and why they matter. I'm your host, Aaron Heller. I hope you're enjoying our journey as we delve into all matters of defense, technology, military and strategic affairs, and so much more. Each episode, we dive into a relevant topic here in the Middle East and we analyze it with a featured guest. We also take a little glimpse into the future in our Game Changer Corner, in which we discuss the technologies that affect the battlefield of tomorrow reminder that we are a relatively new podcast so please find us wherever you get your podcast we're on youtube we're on spotify on apple podcast anchor lots of places so wherever you go like subscribe tell your friends we appreciate it let's dive right into episode number six and today we're going to focus on the upcoming visit of president biden to israel it's happening next month in july been a bit of delays and it's finally happening and anytime one of these things gets underway it's a big deal focusing on the strong relationship between Israel and the United States. This so-called special relationship dates back to the days of JFK in the 1960s. And every visit sentence tries to highlight uh, these, uh, but each has their own character. And this time, both leaders are in precarious situations. Naftali Bennett's government here is hanging on by a thread. Biden's got his divided Congress and uh, pressure from his within his own party as well. So, so we've got a lot to unpack here, and to do that, I'm really glad that we're joined by Halit Barel, an expert in U.S.-Israel relations and a former director at the Israel National Security Council. Halit, welcome. Happy to be here. Well, thanks. All right, so let's dive into it. Um, this visit um, is going to be the Biden-Bennett uh, summit. The last time we went through this, it was the Netanyahu and Trump love fest. So how is this going to be different? Well, first of all, it's not going to be a love fest. It's not going to be so much about personal relationship and longstanding friendship um, and also very different styles of um, mannerisms and uh, speeches and so on and so forth. Not so much the superlatives and the uh, flying off the cuff, but rather a very crafted, constructed um, style of uh, engagement. The other thing is that both Bennett and Lapid are relatively newcomers in terms of their ability to construct a relationship of many, many years with Biden that doesn't exist. Um, on the upside, uh, we have in Biden someone who is very invested in Israeli security, has been for many, many years, knows the issues of foreign policy probably better than many, many presidents that we've seen over the last uh, two decades, and um, a strong emotional attachment to Israel. And some... Uh, significant goodwill stemming from the fact that this Israeli government had taken a decision very early on to manage whatever arguments and conflicts and disagreements it has with the American administration in a very different way than the Netanyahu government had. So what we're, what we're seeing is that there is some credit, some goodwill that has been displayed, um, and also that the system is back to working not on, a per, on the basis of a personal relationship between people, but the establishment itself, meetings and uh, very careful preparation of every issue on the agenda, very careful preparations of the meeting themselves. I'm going to venture that statements have been pre-prepared about probably every item on the agenda. Everything is going to be very constructed, not as spontaneous and uh, up in the air as it was with Trump and Netanyahu, where anything could come out. Yeah. 
Well, the Netanyahu years, we know were tumultuous. There were all those times with Obama, which all those right. uh, uh, ups and downs over there. And then with Trump, which we had this uh, supposed bromance between them, which we find out afterwards it wasn't necessarily true. Um, do you feel that maybe in this case it's a return a bit to normalcy and maybe, you know, Biden and Bennett is a healthier dynamic in the long run? I do think it's healthy because I think it's very policy and interest based. It's based on analysis. It seems like it's been so far a very rational way of conducting policy. Whether you agree or don't agree with the particular result, um, there's a certain process there. And one example would be what happened with the IRGC within the negotiations on the Iran agreement. So the opposition to moving forward with an agreement that would include the relief of sanctions um, <clears throat> officially, the State Department, uh, removing the IRGC from the State Department list of uh, uh, terrorist organizations, there wasn't a big blast, there wasn't a big argument, uh, but there was a very careful kind of deliberation between the United States and Israel, and it did result in something very positive, which is the refusal to remove the IRGC from the State Department's uh, terrorist list. Biden's not just coming to Israel, he's also coming to Israel and to Saudi Arabia on this trip. Um, our next episode, actually, this podcast is going to be at Saudi Arabia, so it's a chance to give us a little bit of a teaser on that issue. Um, as far as Biden's concerned, I mean, like, what is his agenda over here in that regard? Is it more Saudi-based, more Israel-based? And in relation to that, do you think Biden's going to push for normalization, for example? Well, I think it's both, where Saudi would take the first place in terms of urgency. There's a lot going out on in, Israel, in United States-Saudi um, relations that doesn't have anything to do with Israel, as we know the... Khashoggi and this whole idea of the United States pivoting out of the region and the United States uh, and Saudi, how do they see each other as allies? There's a lot of tension there in that relationship. And it's really manifested since the Ukraine crisis and what happened with oil and this rediscovery of dependence on oil from the Gulf, which everybody was kind of convinced was over with. So what immediately is required in terms of the Americans is that the Saudis um, help out in terms of oil production and um, entering more oil into the market and helping reduce the prices and, and, and inflation that results from that. So that's very big on the American uh, list. Um, of course, there are things that the Saudis would like to see in return from the United States. So that's a very urgent uh, part of it. But it is also very closely connected to Israel and what is trying to be achieved here, uh, which is really to put in place some sort of regional construct uh, defense construct, some sort of military construct um, to isolate Iran. Um, and I think there's a somewhat newfound understanding in this um, administration, at least compared to the Obama administration, that whether or not you're going to reach a deal with Iran, that doesn't really settle the Iran nuclear issue in terms of what's happening in the region. And there's got to be another leg to this effort, which is creating some sort of alliance some sort of security assurance for Gulf states and for, for other states like Israel. Um, now, is it going to be normalization? Probably not. But from everything we're hearing, there's going to be some declaration about some sort of advancement in uh, Israeli-Saudi relations. So is it going to be normalization and something very official? I'm not sure. But I do think there's going to be some move uh, that we're hearing about that's going to be announced um, as part of what uh, the United States and Saudi are doing for one another, and Israel is obviously a big part of that. Let's talk about Iran for a second, because naturally that's going to be at the top of the agenda. It always is sure. in these meetings. Um, we know what Israel wants. Uh, the question is, what can it get? Where do things stand right now as far as the nuclear deal and beyond? And does Israel have a good bargaining position right now? 
Well, the new, there are two different issues that are folded into that. One is indeed the nuclear deal. Um, and while for a long time it wasn't looking very promising at all because of uh, what we saw around the IRGC, which essentially it was domestic opposition in the United States by the Democratic Party, of course the Republican as well, but also by many dem Democrats to acquiesce to this request, um, even though it's largely symbolic, but it means a lot, especially in the region, for uh, the IRGC to be sort of legitimized or, or whatnot. Um, so that really put, and, and, and there's a time barrier on this nuclear agreement being uh, reinvigorated because we're, very, we're getting close to the sunset. Every day makes a difference. Having said that, which is all pessimistic about reaching a deal, um, the other side of it is that we're hearing there are reports that the Iranians um, have sent messages that they would be willing to compromise on the IRGC issue um, and maybe soften on some other issues. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's not something that official Israel wants, but we've heard some very important voices also saying um, that an agreement, even if it buys very little time, um, is important because we need that time. Now, the other side of, of this, of what Israel wants and needs, which is extremely significant, is Israel needs the United States to reassure and reiterate that it will not allow Iran to get a nuclear military capabilities. Now, that thing has been, that statement has been thrown about, but there needs to be some real will demonstrated around that. And there are many, many things that can be done. There can be joint drills that can be done, and there can be a lot of joint military efforts that can be down, done to demonstrate that the United States is serious about the option of having to prevent Iran from achieving a nuclear military capability in other ways if this agreement situation doesn't work out and doesn't pan out. And I think there's been a hesitance to do it because there's been a notion that it will make an agreement harder to reach, whereas in fact, I think it's just you know what you do, you plan parallel planning and these kind of things. Okay, now in recent, always Iran we talked about was a major issue, and Israel liked that in these talks in recent years with the Americans because it put the Palestinian issue off the table, mm -hmm. and we know the peace process has been mm -hmm. dead for a very long time, but now that Biden's back and not Trump, there will be a reference to it. What can we expect from that? What does Biden want to get out of the Israelis? What does he expect to go home with on the Palestinian front? Right, so clearly Biden, like all of us, understands very well the condition of the Israeli government, the Israeli coalition, and how fragile it is and how little can really be done on the Palestinian issue in kind of the diplomatical, political level. So I don't think there are any illusions about what can be achieved on that level. However, that leaves a lot of stuff that can't be taken up on the economic level. So I think we're going to see a lot of focus on economic moves. So requests from Israel to increase the number of Palestinians that have work permits and can come in and work. Requests for Israel to approve all sorts of joint or even not joint, but infrastructure projects that are related on Israeli consent and so on and so forth. We're going to see requests for those kind of compromises from Israel. Um, you know, and, and one battle has already, uh, you know, if you want to look at it, it depends on what side you look. For example, the EU has already uh, declared that it will continue to transfer money to the Palestinian Authority. I think the Biden's uh, administration agenda is really how do I fortify the Palestinian Authority in the internal situation within Palestinian society now, because the Palestinian Authority has had a very rough time just organizationally. So I think it's going to focus in the Palestinian track around um, economic issues. Let's talk about America for a second. I know that you lived there for many years, um, as did I. The Trump years, you know, he, he upended so many American traditions uh, in, in the American political uh, spectrum. And one of those was the issue that Israel is traditionally a bipartisan issue. And now it's deeply divided. 
Um, can we get back there, or is Israel now permanently just another wedge issue between Democrats and Republicans? I think we can get back there, but it will require a lot, a lot of work and a shift in Israeli understanding of American politics. And also, I would even venture and say um, just the the importance of the Jewish population in the United States and how much they are part of, of Israel and Israel's um, stamina and Israel's force. Um, because what I feel has happened is that it became a partisan issue in a sense, and there are certain factions that are served by this, right? Um, but it's not necessarily inevitable. It's just a return to good relationships, the ability of the Israeli government to demonstrate that it understands that this is not president dependent, that they can work with any U.S. administration and, and are thankful to work with any U.S. administration and are happy about this alliance is one side of it, right? So, um, by the way, it's tricky because you have to do that while standing up for your interests, which are at times very conflictual with what the United States um, agenda is because the United States is a global power and Israel's a regional power. And in many ways, we see things the same and in, other, in certain ways, we have conflict. So there's got to be a constructive way to resolve it and you have to let the systems work, the establishments work together and so on. Um, there's been a very long time where that wasn't going on. And so um, there's definitely a rift there that needs to be fixed. It can't well, be fixed. There's all these jokes about that Israel didn't know who the regional power was and who the superpower was as far as those positions. And so I guess, I mean, America, you know, it's got so many issues. It's divided over all these issues of guns and horses, all these other things. And internationally, it's got Russia and Ukraine and China. Has Israel finally been shrunk down to size? Is it finally down to its relevant significance? Because for years, it always felt that they had an exaggerated significance. Um, there are definitely things that are overshadowing the, the significance of, of Israel, Israeli politics, their role Israel plays in, and so on. So um, in, in that sense, but, that's, but, but on the other hand, that was always the case in years that we tend to forget about, you know, not in the 1990s, okay, in the 1970s, and, you know, in the 1960s, right? There was superpowers and big things going on. And uh, when we're seeing things like Ukraine happen, then yes, of course, uh, other things are pushed to the side. But in terms of general, in my assessment, and again, it's not based on polls and whatnot, but, you know, you visit the state, and if you have a very strong relationship with people in the states and so on, um, is that Israel very much still has the affinity of, of the United States in terms of the population. Uh, that's a good thing, that's an important thing. Having said that, um, with, especially with um, the young Jewish population, it's very important to be able to have very open conversations and not to ask them to check their values at the door when they speak about Israel, right? Young, young people who are invested in Israel need to be allowed to be part of the conversation and not just, you know, real cheerleaders. Now, obviously, you know, we're talking about how the domestic situation in America that will influence these things as well. And I've suggested in previous uh, columns that Biden may be the last president of his kind, that because with his traditional uh, emotional connection right. to Israel, that the future will probably bode somebody more like a Trump-like figure on the right or an AOC character on the left. Do you agree? I mean, do you feel like, you know, that this traditional way that we used to see American leaders see Israel is going to be different in the next generation? I'm not sure. I think it's a good question because the world has changed so much, right? the stakes that are on the table are changing. The world has moved from a, bi a bipolar situation to a unipolar situation to what people are now calling a multipolar situation. And so um, who's friends with who is changing in importance and is constantly shifting and it's hard to tell. Um, having said that, I think there's some sort of very strong value-based relationship between Israel and the United States that 
um, is just there in a sense that it won't shift because a president is this way as a president is that way. Um, but you're right. I mean, as, as, as far as like a strong emotional attachment to Israel and multiple visits and the desire to see Israel thrive, um, it's hard to tell well, who, how the new players will um, really emerge. And also because it's very hard to tell who they are, especially in the Democratic Party mm-hmm. when you look ahead or even in the Republican Party. And so um, it's hard to, to predict whether um, they already have this relationship, whether they have to build it, whether they want to build it. It's an important question. Well, we know that this visit is going to be a big deal for Prime Minister Naftali Bennett. You know, he's uh, obviously it's a feather in your cap whenever you can host an American president. And I even read in the newspapers in recent days that his, his fragile coalition, which really is just hanging by, even one of the guys who's threatening to bolt his coalition, Bennett reportedly told him, listen, just wait till Biden gets here. <laughs> Let him come here, and then this thing can fall apart. So obviously he wants that picture. But concretely, when you are so fragile, when you have such a diverse coalition ideologically, when you're depending on every single member of Knesset to survive, does he really have any kind of power and any kind of leverage when he meets the leader of the free world? Well, I think the the real question is what will come out of this meeting. It's not just how it looks, what will come out of a meeting. Yes, a visit by an American president is always a very big deal. Look, we even saw Netanyahu and Obama, and we knew, know what kind of relationship was there. Netanyahu was going out of his way to make everything look great with Obama and welcome him when he was here on his first visit. But... Uh, in this particular case, there's another player also, which is Yale Lapid. Um, and he's been doing, from what we hear, a lot of the work around uh, constructing this visit and making sure everything works out. The coalition was very interested, obviously, in this visit carrying out. And there was a kind of question in the United States, I think, in the United States administration, whether this is a good time to visit because of the state of the coalition. And the decision was that, yes, it is. So it ultimately depends on what is the statement that comes out on Saudi is it mm-hmm. is it significant? Is it an extension of the Abraham Accords? Is it something that you can tout, you know, um, as a huge success? How far do you go on the Palestinian issue? What are the kind of compromises? Is it going to be a problem? Is it going to be something that's going to push the coalition to break? Probably not. Um, and so the question of what are they going to say on Iran is, is Biden going to reconfirm a steadfast commitment to preventing Iran from obtaining a nuclear military capability. If all those things emerge, then yes, it might be something that fortifies the coalition for a little longer. But Israeli politics are Israeli politics. Yeah. You never know. Well, we know what happened last time. Right. Biden was here, which was 12 years ago, if I remember correctly, 2010, when he was vice president. And that was a bit of a fiasco because during his visit here, they announced some new settlement building. I remember being there when it happened and it was so awkward and uncomfortable. Um, I'm guessing, as you mentioned, this is going to try to avoid that from happening again and everything will be planned. But do you see any pitfalls? Do you see anything upending this visit? I don't really, because I think it's it's been very carefully crafted. Once again, Israeli politics, you never know. You never know if somebody isn't waiting for the exact time that Biden is visiting to get up and move to the other side of the Knesset and, uh, you know, unrest the coalition altogether. But uh, not something that we can predict in terms of foreign policy, not something to embarrass, not something... Um, to compromise the visit in in any way. Um, He was vice president when he visited last. He's president now um, in something that was uh, very carefully crafted. So I don't expect it to happen, but this is Israel. And so Mm -hmm. everything's on the table, right? 
Okay, final question. Overall, when you look at this from a scorecard sheet, uh, what is what is Israel hope to get out of this? What do the Americans hope to get out of it? I'm sure everybody's going to want to leave with like one major accomplishment. What do you think that's going to be? I think for the Americans, it's it's twofold, and the things are related. Is one is some sort of success in promoting uh, the creation of a regional security construct that will help isolate Iran and uh, will help relieve the United States from the burden of being the only country that is carrying the security sort of uh, in, in a regional sense, because we all carry, all countries carry it in a, in a singular sense. Um, but, but mostly um, to make sure that Saudi produces what the United States needs from it right now, which is more oil, better relations with the United States, and um, some sort of influence on the Ukraine issue, on the Russian, um, you know, hurting the Russians even more with oil and uh, inflation in the United States and in the Western world at large. I think those are the things that they're really uh, looking to get out of it. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Very enlightening. And we look forward to following this visit with you as well. Thanks. Great to be here. Uh, so that does it for this part. And we'll be right back with Game Changer. Welcome back. It's time for Game Changer, our corner in which we take a glimpse into the future and look at the technologies that affect tomorrow's battlefield. And today we're going to be discussing naval drones. To discuss that, I'm really glad that we're joined by Anir Solomon, head of the U.S. Desk and Business Development at IAI's Military Aircraft Group. Anir, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Aaron. Great. So let's talk about this. We call it naval drones, but there's the more official name is Maritime Airborne Surveillance. What exactly is it and what kind of specific needs does it have that make it different from regular drone technology? So the difference from, from regular drones is we require to operate in national airspace in conjunction with other aircraft that is out there. And there's a need for us to be able to see and avoid and stay away from other airborne traffic. It's not like regular drones operating in a military area uh, uh, that is, 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 is a closed area. And the specific need, the, the requirement for airborne ISR continues to grow, which requires basically navies and Coast Guard to enlarge their airborne fleets as well as personnel. Um, and that's much additional cost. And the need specifically is to counter uh, drug and weapon trafficking, uh, oil sanctions, as well as uh, coastal monitoring uh, for illegal immigration, illegal fishing. Um, and basically they do that nowadays with regular manned aircraft flying between four to six hours, which means the rest of the day, the rest of the 24 hours is, is going unsurveilled. That's That's what we're trying to solve. Interesting. So it sounds like there's specific um, requirements for this kind of technology. It sounds like there's probably a lot of uh, automation involved, artificial intelligence, all these different kind of tools you need for this. Absolutely. You're right. Um, it's basically tracking hundreds and thousands of targets at the same time. It's like looking for a needle in a haystack. And what we try to do is basically use long-endurance unmanned systems to be able to not just look at those hundreds and thousands of targets, but clear the majority of them through automation and artificial intelligence, and then through engine rules as well as vessel behavior, uh, uh, be able to state the operator with just less than a handful of potential targets that he's able to further inquire and, and, and look at. And by that, you're being much more efficient and your success rate for such a mission is tremendously higher. 
So this sounds like it's a new field, um, and we call this corner Game Changers. So at IAI, what are you guys doing to change the game? What's your added value here? So in order to solve uh, what we've just talked about, uh, uh, we utilize uh, a maritime Heron UAS. It's an unmanned aerial system that, that flies that mission of 24 hours and is able to do 24-7 missions. And it's flying with a lot of payloads and sensors, uh, radars, electro-optical payloads, and, 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 other, and other things that do everything from detection, classification, and identification, and basically supporting interdiction of those specific targets. Uh, uh, we have been doing this for, for a long time, and that data is being disseminated from the aircraft to wherever the ground segment, the GCS, where, where the people sit, uh, are located, as well as headquarters all around the world. And this is done through our uh, uh, cloud network, secured cloud network, and this is cost saver, less personnel, less aircraft, and a tremendous solution. Interesting stuff. Very, very futuristic. Thank you very much. Uh, and that does it for this episode of... Uh, Defense Matters. I hope you're enjoying our journey. A reminder, you can follow us in various places, so please follow us wherever you do get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Aaron Heller saying goodbye, and I'll see you next time on Defense Matters.